Welcome to the Cowie Baptist Church podcast. To learn more about Cowie, including in our gathering times, visit us online at cowie.church. Enjoy the message. Appreciate Stan and his testimony, and just uh, I'll also say Stan makes some pretty mean chocolate chip cookies too. Um, but it was a blessing. Stan uh, surrendered his life to Christ, repented of his sins, and uh, came to Christ uh, as he was picking up the trash compactor. Uh, he was uh, driving for J&B Disposal, and uh, the Lord, uh, we just had a special time uh, that day and a time that uh, was evident in Stan's life from that day forward that uh, God had changed his life, and it was just a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, thank you, Stan, for your faithfulness uh, and uh, just sharing your story uh, this morning. Uh, you know, we are blessed to be part of a faith family where we can hear the stories of one another, where we can be encouraged uh, by how God's grace has impacted our lives and uh, so grateful to be part of this family. So grateful to see uh, some of you that have been away at college and are back for this Thanksgiving week and uh, just grateful for uh, just the privilege of being able to gather under the authority of God's word today. We are in Titus chapter three. So if you want to take uh, your copy of God's Word and turn to Titus 3. Uh, we're going to be walking through that entire chapter, Lord willing, today. And, uh, you know, this morning, it was kind of interesting this morning. I was on my way to church uh, for our early service and uh, had headed out where I had a lot of cushion. And all of a sudden, as I was driving, I see this on my uh, dash. And if you're able to read that, it says, Engine Power is reduced. Now, the first thing that came up said, check traction control. And I thought, I don't need any traction control. I'm just driving to church. We're in a good spot. We're not in four-wheel drive. And then all of a sudden, I went from having power to having none. Like, all it would do is idle. And so I'm trying to like idle uphill and that's not working too good. So I kind of get circled around and go back downhill and I'm not too awfully far from, uh, from my driveway. So I get there and get a ride and we, we kind of get all that sorted out. But as I was riding to church following that, I was thinking a little bit about the church in the midst of this crazy culture. You know, the scripture would tell us that the same power that rose Jesus from the grave lives in us. And there was something this morning that was uh, causing this motor that has all this horsepower and all this ability uh, to make that truck move along. There was something that wasn't the motor that was causing it not to be applied and work in the way that it could and that it should. And as I think about the church so many times today, I wonder what it is, right? It could be that some people would say that our uh, that we take lightly sin, right? And because of lack of holiness, we don't experience the power of God in uh, our lives in the way that we see fit. Could it be in our response to the grace of God? We're going to look at that this morning. We're going to be talking about just this reality. And as we, we kind of set the stage for this morning, we are reminded that we experience two kingdoms, right? We live in this uh, physical kingdom, right? We live uh, here and, and there's this kingdom of this world, right? And, and as we look around, the kingdom of this world has gone crazy, right? Many of us, would you, would you agree with that? Like people have lost their minds, right? And we just kind of look around and see that all too fresh. And then there's this invisible kingdom that is just as real, th this kingdom uh, of God that we are 
a part of as followers of Jesus Christ, this heavenly kingdom. Now, as we walk in this earthly kingdom, we see people are mad all the time. Have you noticed that? We are in a culture where people get mad over the littlest things, where people seem to be constantly on edge. People are always in a rush. We constantly have the pings of our cell phones coming in. We have notifications about this and that. And the limited time that we have is segmented by all those things. And it feels like everything is coming so fast. And so we we live in that kind of environment. And people seem to be on edge all the time. Now, we were at the gas station this week at the little Ingalls gas station. My daughter and I were there, and we were getting our, uh, our little fountain drink there and some of the best apple fritters in the world. And so, they're so good. And so, we're there, and we're just kind of doing our thing. We're in line there, and there is uh, a young guy that is... Uh, in line before us, and we're not paying a whole lot of attention to kind of things that are going on. And then there's an older guy. Now, last week we talked about the role of like older men and younger men and older women and younger women. And we kind of said in, in, you know, rabbinical writing that like age 42 and older was older. So I'm referring to this person as an older guy. He's like my age. So he's not really older. He's a little older than me. Uh, but this guy's there and he's obviously just getting off work. He's had a hard day and he's, he's coming in there and all he wants is his Diet Mountain Dew. And he is clueless to the fact that he gets in front of this younger gentleman and and Hope and I are just there and all of a sudden this place starts happening right and the young guy looks at him and and really aggressively says you know hey you broke line what are you doing get you know and he's pretty excited and the older guy He's not that pleased with his reaction to his line cutting because he, he really had no clue. And so he looks at the young guy with some pretty um, intentional eyes and he says, punk, you know, and the next thing you know, they're like just about to go down over like 32 seconds in line at Ingles. And I'm watching this thing. And, and then I'm reminded that like my daughter's right with me. And sometimes I don't know if you've ever been around some, you know, altercations like that. People start slinging things and it gets a little crazy. And so I'm thinking at that moment, I'm like, well, Hope's with me. And so I'm telling her, I'm like, Hope. And they're just mouthing back and forth, you know, and it's starting to escalate a little bit. And I'm like, this is about to go down. And so I'm like, Hope. I said, here, Hope, get back, get back. And so I start kind of pushing her back. Well, you know how it is when there's something like that. All I hear from her or all I feel from her is like right at the back of my shoulder. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, like, I mean, I'm, I feel like I'm pushing her back, you know, so she can, I've like got her angle so she can see and they're going back and forth. And these guys, I mean, they're about to lose their mind. And so they're going back and forth, hopes leaning in, you know, trying to see what's going on. Finally, one of the, the, the younger guy finally starts going back the other direction, you know, and he says, I'm at pump eight, pump eight. I'll see it. Pump eight. You want some of this? Pump eight, pump eight. I'm thinking, I'm so glad this is over, right? And so they go on out and nothing else happens. And so I'm just kind of there and I talk to Hope afterwards. I'm like, Hope, could you not hear me? Like, get back. And she's like, Dad, she said, I had to see how this thing plays out. (laughs) And so that's the culture we live in. That's the culture that we find ourselves in as a church. We find ourselves in this place of cancel culture where anything that goes against the kind of cultural morality is 
uh, is attacked. There's this uh, article that I read in Decision Magazine that says America finds itself in a culture that cancels everything opposed to the mainstream moral narrative. And the church stands at the front line. Biblical values that once were considered morally right and acceptable are now considered morally repugnant by the normal culture around us, by many Americans. And the response to people that go against this cultural line, the response to those that would stand for righteousness, the response to that is to be canceled, to be defriended, to be boycotted, to be booted out. But I want to remind you this morning, you don't have to fear the church being canceled. Jesus Christ cannot be canceled. Upon the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, the scripture says that that is on that confession that the church would be built, right? That it's upon this profession, that upon this rock, right? That the church would be built and the gates of Hades would not stand Against it. And so we don't have to worry about being canceled in that way, but we are to be aware of the way that we live in the midst of this culture. We're to live winsomely as followers of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is writing to Titus about the way that they are to live in this Cretan culture. If you remember in chapter one, as we were walking through this passage, it said that they were, uh, that they were liars, that they were evil beasts, that they were lazy gluttons. And this description of the culture that they were navigating was there. And we're going to see in chapter three, there's this, this instruction in the way that we live in relationship to the world, in relationship to authorities, in relationship to everyone that is winsome. We're going to see this instruction that is true today. And the title of this message is sweet and sound, sweet and sound. We've been talking about in the first chapter, we said, you know what, we've got to have sound teaching and there there to be men of character and there to be uh, sound leaders in the church, right? And there to stand on sound doctrine, right? There's this sound way that we interact as a body of believers. We talked about relationships and this concept of mentoring and, and just the way the church looks on the inside and the way that we relate to one another last week and the way that we uh, have, the, the gospel's been designed and, and the way discipleship has been designed to grow us in the grace of God. And here's what we see in the book of Titus. We see that as the grace of God increases in our life and and that as we experience God's grace, that godliness increases as a result in our life. That's what happens as we are saved by grace, as we are changed by God's grace. And we see that we are to be people in the midst of this world that are sound in what we believe, that we stand for righteousness. Ephesians 4 would say that we speak the truth in love. So we stand for righteousness, but we're also a force for righteousness as we engage this world. And the way that we do that, we share the grace of God with our lips, but we also demonstrate the grace of God with our lives. Now, how many people know it's easier to say than it is to do? I love the song, Amazing Grace, right? How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's the perspective that we're going to see that God desires his people to have, but we're also going to see that the sound of those 
that have been saved by grace, that have been changed by grace, that are living their lives by grace, those that are extending the grace of God, that it is a beautiful sound, even to a world that doesn't understand it. Maybe even better, especially to a world that doesn't understand it. So let's look in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And we're going to see that, that these, these Jesus followers, right, that our response is to be sweet and sound to those in authority. Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Scripture says this, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready for every good deed. So as Christ followers, our response to those in authority is, to be, is sweet and sound. It's, it's, to be, uh, it's to be consistent with our uh, beliefs, but it's to be in, submiss- in submission or in subjection to rulers. Now, some of that can be very hard to balance, right? And some people would say, well, you know what? Uh, when this was written, they had no idea what you know, we were going to experience in the 21st century. They had no idea what kind of rulers would be and what kind of things would be there and, and how all this would work. But I want to remind you that this was a time of, of Caesars. This was a, a time of uh, occupational armies, right, that, that, that were ruling. And this was a time of Colosseums, right? This was a time that was crazy, right? And so there's this call to submit to the authority of those in, in rulers and into authority above us. And so what does a submission to authority look like? Here's a working definition. To place oneself under and respond in respectful obedience to the one who is in authority as long as it doesn't conflict with God's ultimate authority. So that includes things like paying taxes, obeying civil laws, obeying traffic laws, Right? And for some of us, for, for some, and this morning I didn't have trouble with this, but for some of us, it's submitting our right foot, right, to the authority of those above us can be the last thing that we are willing to submit. And so here's this, this thought, right, that we submit and we live in honoring submission to those who are in authority unless those authorities clearly go against the authority of the Word of God. So we, we have this establishment that we have God as our ultimate authority and we recognize that in God's sovereignty that he uses imperfect authority in our life and he works through that right that he's that that he uses those kind of things and so there's this thought that that we submit to authority unless it goes against God's authority and then we should resist authority that requires ungodliness in our lives. So here's this already not yet kingdom. And as we live in this kingdom, we live winsomely as good citizens. We live, live in a way uh, that, that stands for righteousness, but yet walks in this world. Here's an interesting example. A few years back, you may remember uh, that Hobby Lobby ended up in the news a good bit. They were uh, actually ended up in a Supreme Court case and there was there was a uh, mandate that came down a uh, um, a health care mandate that basically said that all uh, family businesses that their business must provide uh, what they believed and what I believe are abortion causing drugs as part of their health insurance and so they stated that hey being Christians we don't pay for drugs that might cause 
abortions. That means we don't cover emergency contraceptions, the morning after pill or week after pill. We believe doing so, this is their words, doing so might end a life after the moment of conception. And so as followers of Jesus Christ, from the womb to the tomb, life is sacred, created in the image of God. And so they said it goes against the biblical principles on which we've run this company since day one. If we refuse to comply, we will face $1.3 million per day in government fines. They go on uh, just to talk about the, uh, the way that, um, that they engage. And, and they say this, I know people say we ought to follow the rules, that it's the same for everyone. But that's not true. The government has exempted thousands of companies from this mandate for reasons of convenience or cost. But it won't exempt them for reasons of religious belief. So Hobby Lobby and my family are forced to make a choice. With great reluctance, we filed a lawsuit today representing the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, asking a federal court to stop this mandate before it hurts our business. We do not like to go running into court, but we no longer have a choice. We believe people are more important than the bottom line and that honoring God is more important than turning a profit. They go on to say the government is forcing us to choose between following our faith and following the law. And that's a choice I say that no American and no American business should have to make. Now they went to the Supreme Court and they won that ruling. I believe it was 5-4 that they won that. And so they stood in a way that stood for righteousness and said, you know what, this is our uh, conviction and belief based on the word of God. And we're not going to compromise in that way. There are businesses that's chosen to say, you know what, we're going to be closed on Sunday. We're going to allow our employees to be off a little bit earlier. We read about Chick-fil-A's where they say, you know what, if you're coming into this mall, those that would be over them in, in their uh, leasing and all that would say, you're going to be open on Sunday. And they say, you know what, we're, we can just not come. It's fine, whatever. But this is the conviction that we have. And they're saying, we want to stand. Now they're not going, hey, everybody else in there is doing the wrong thing. They're not making making this, this aggressive type thing, but they're saying, you know what, we're going to stand for righteousness. This is what we uh, understand the word of God uh, to say. And because of that, we submit to that. And that authority is greater than any other authority in our lives. And we're going to be willing to stand in that way. So there's this submission to authority. There's this reality though, that when the, the authority of government is different than the authority of God's word, that we are to, to stand in a way uh, against that. And so here's this uh, Verse 2, he says, to malign no one. So we see in verse 1, he says, to be obedient, to, to sub subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one. Verse 2, to be peaceable. So malign no one. This is, we're not going to be uh, defaming character. We're not going to be uh, attacking people. This is not the way that we're going to operate. We're going to be peaceable. This is a, just a simply non-fighter. This is a person uh, that's not desiring trouble. There'd be gentle. That's this thought of being reasonable or being sweet, showing every consideration. This every consideration gives us a thought of, of gentleness, this thought of meekness, this thought of being mild and even tempered. So here we are, we're, we're in the midst of this, this crazy culture, but he says, we're going to live in a way that looks different from this world. And, and this is how that's going to look. And so it says, we're showing con every consideration for all men. And so we're to live differently from this world. A, a Jesus follower's response to authority is sweet and sound. A Jesus follower's response is also sweet and sound to everyone. Now, when we think about everybody, it's not just people we like. Fact is, if we're only uh, responding in a good way to people that we agree with and people that are our good friends and people that are there, we're really doing nothing different than this world, right? There's nothing unusual about that, right? There's nothing different. But those that are saved by God's grace, we live graciously 
in relationship with other people. Those that have experienced God's grace, we live graciously. And so the question is, how are we going to live? The reality is that the watching world is jumping and leaning in, right? Like hope. They're looking over the top. They're leaning in. They're, they're wondering, how is it that the people that walk out of this building today, the people that gather as the body of Christ, how are they going to live in this world? Are there any difference? And you say, what does this all men mean? Does that include like my enemies? Yeah, especially especially your enemies, those that you would disagree with. Bob Goff, who wrote a book called Love Does, has a quote that I like, and he says this, love does not dishonor others. The way we treat the people we disagree with the most is a report card on our faith. The way we interact with this world, the way we interact with our enemies, the way we interact with people that we disagree with, all of those things, th- th- that impacts the reputation of the gospel and the reputation of those that proclaim it in this world. See, the world knows what a mess looks like. They've seen the lines at an Ingalls gas station. They've seen their own homes where things have gone crazy. They've seen all those kind of things. And we, as followers of Jesus Christ, it should begin at home, by the way. Our homes should be sweet and sound. They should be standing on sound doctrine, on the word of God, but they should be places of peace, places where people that have been changed by grace reflect that grace, where our kids experience and see what it looks like to follow Jesus. That's our first primary role of discipling, right? We should see that in other believers that we're in relationship with, Titus chapter two, where older women are teaching younger women, where older men are training younger men, where there's that kind of engagement. We should see those kind of things And we should be different from this world in such a way that it causes us to have a platform to proclaim the gospel in greater ways. Here's a a quote for we what earns the church, the platform to proclaim the gospel is the peaceable pattern of his people. So as the, the world looks at us, they see something different and it's something that is Attractive, And what we see a lot of times in our culture, and it's very easy to understand how we get this way, right? We look at the unrighteousness that's around us, and we know that as followers of Jesus Christ that we're to fight for righteousness, right? We know that we're to be people that stand for the right things. We know those kind of things are there, but we're also to be a force for righteousness. And so how in the world do those two things intersect? How can we be those kind of people? And a lot of times we just appear angry, and it's because we are angry, right? And we look and we say, you know what, I have a right to be angry I'd say that Jesus has the right to be angry now there's righteous anger that we see in the life of Christ but we also see how he responds to people we also see how he engages with sinners we also see those kind of things. And so a lot of times we think about the second coming of Christ at the end of Titus 2. He says, we're looking for the blessed hope. And we're thinking, you know what? I can't wait till Jesus comes back and he makes all this right. And you're going to get what you deserve. That's really what we mean. That's really what sometimes we think. That's really what our attitude says about this world. But what the scripture teaches us and what we see in Titus chapter 3 is that our longing should not be for them to be destroyed, but our longing should be for them to experience the grace of God that we have experienced in our lives, right? We long to see them experience God's grace. Where do we get motivation like that? How in the world can we think like that? Look at verse 3, and I'll show you exactly where we get that. Remember, first of all, he says, where God brought you 
from. Look at verse 3. He says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, harming one another, hating one another. We see this kind of, of engagement. This is who we used to be. And, and the world wants to say, you know what? If you're not under uh, and, and, and you're not... Uh, Uh, being submitted to all this religious stuff and you're not doing all those kind of things that you can experience freedom. But what we see in the scripture is that when we uh, were were, uh, not following Christ, that we were enslaved. We were being ruled by our own desires. We were being ruled by our own passions. The world says, hey, when you reject God, you find freedom. But what happens when you reject God is you find enslavement. You find enslavement to sin, enslavement to the desires of your flesh. And as a result, relationships are messed up because we're trying to find fulfillment in relationships with other people. We're trying to find fulfillment and anything that we idolize. Eventually, eventually, I think Jonathan Edwards said this, we demonize it and we see that these relationships are strained, that all these things happen. And here's the truth that I want you to hear today. If you don't hear anything else that I say, it's only when we realize that apart from Christ, that without Christ, there is no more hope for me or for you to get to heaven than the worst sinner that we ever encounter. When we realize that without Christ, apart from Christ, that there is no more hope for us than anyone else in this world, we are in a place that we then can relate to the world. And that is how we relate to the world. See, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. A lot of times we want to look and say, well, this person is a murderer and this person did this and this person did that. But the way that we look through the lens of the cross is we say, it's but by the grace of God that I've not ended up in those kind of places. And I long for them to experience the grace of God because our comparison is not with us and this other person. Our comparison is with the holiness and the perfection of our God, right? And when we look at that, we realize that we are all far from God, that we have fallen short of his glory, that that because of our sin, we are separated from God, that all of our righteousness, the scripture says, is as filthy rags in his sight, right? That we experience like Isaiah in Isaiah 6 when he says, he says, I'm woe to me, right? He, He gets a glimpse of the glory of God and he says, woe is to me. I'm a man with unclean lips. I'm a man who's seen in in light of God's glory. That's how our response is. Look at verse four. He says, but it's almost like in Ephesians 2 when he says, but God, it's that same kind of picture. He says, but when the kindness of God, our savior and his love for mankind appeared, right? Not only do we remember what we used to be. We remember the kindness of God in Christ. Look at verse 5. He saved us. How did he save us? Look at verse 5. How did he save us? Not on the basis of deeds, not because of anything good that we did, not of any, anything which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. God saved us, not because we were good, not because we earned it. He didn't save us because we were good. God saved us because he is good. God saved us out of his righteousness. We extend grace because that's the only thing that separates us from them is the grace of God. We've experienced his grace. We've been changed by the grace of God. Verse six says, he poured it out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our savior. This is the truth of the gospel. And and we have experienced his grace. And by the way, sometimes I hear people say, you know what? You don't know all the things that I've done. You don't know how far I am. Uh, You don't know all the sin that I've done. You don't know all the, the mess that I'm in. There is nothing in your life, nothing in your past 
that not only can God forgive you from, but God can also take that and redeem it for his glory. That's what's beautiful about all these story videos, right? We hear brokenness in the past of people's lives. We hear transparency of who we were as we were walking in sin, as we were, we were tangled up in the mess of this world. And we see that the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has changed us. And because of the grace of God, now we are pursuing godliness. Now we are living differently. Look at verse 7. He said, so that. So, so we see the kindness of God. We see his grace. It's been poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. So that, verse 7, being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The things that God calls us to do, as he calls us to, to live as people who extend grace, as he calls us to live different in this culture, as he calls us to walk, and what we see in verse 1 and 2, when we see God call us to do those things, he always calls us to do those things out of a great awareness of what he has done for us. That's how it works, right? We see, hey, you're to, to live this way, and you say, there's no way I can, and he said, remember what I did for you? Do you remember the grace that's been extended to you? See, the things God calls us to do flows out of a great awareness of what God has done for us. When we're reminded of God's grace in our life, God gets the glory. When we live in light of that and we extend grace, God gets the glory. When we remember where he has brought us from, he gets the glory. God gets the glory. But I want to tell you something. We get the blessing. Look at this next verse. This is, this is such an amazing verse. When we think about just verse 7, he says, listen, we've been justified by grace so that we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We are justified by his grace. Justification is the, the gracious act of God whereby which he declares believing sinners to be righteous because of the finished work of Christ, not because of their work. This gracious act of God, we are justified by his grace. He declares believing sinners to be right with God because of what Jesus did. And when we understand that, we don't blow up and act better than everybody else. And we don't have a holier than thou attitude. And we don't have this judgmental way about us. We don't have that air about us. We understand that the way that we've been justified is by God's grace. And then we live out of that grace. We recognize that he has blessed us so that we might be a blessing. How sweet the sound is followers of Jesus Christ that understand that they have been saved by his grace. And they extend that grace to others. Listen, we're joint heirs with Jesus. You've got to understand that there's these two kingdoms and the things that happen in this kingdom, the momentary light affliction, as the scripture says, the things that we walk through, uh, that, that they're nothing compared to all that awaits us. And so we live in this kingdom and we experience hurt and we experience difficult times, but it's not going to shake us to the place that we respond without grace. It's not going to shake us uh, to all those kind of things. We're going to quit sweating the small stuff because we understand who we are in Christ and everything that's Jesus belongs to us. We're joint heirs with Jesus. We are, we've been blessed in this kind of way and we have got to live in light of that. See, we respond with grace. It's sweet and sound. That's the way that we live. We stand 
for the things that matter. Look at verse 8. He said, this is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. So that doesn't mean that we just kind of mamby-pamby around with these kind of things. He says, hey, listen, we've experienced the grace of God. And of these things, he said, we want to stand on thus saith the word of God, right? When we engage with a lost world that's around us, right? We're not afraid to call sin sin. We're not afraid uh, to stand for righteousness. But we stand in a way that points to the grace of God that has forgiven us and has restored us and redeemed us and can restore them and will works. We, we speak confidently so that those who have believed in God, so we speak these things to one another. We should constantly be reminding one another of the grace of God in our lives. When we gather in relationships with other believers, when we gather in Sunday school, when we gather in D groups, when we gather in relationships with other believers, we should constantly be reminding ourselves of the gospel. We should constantly be reminding ourselves of what God has done in our life. And he says when we do that, those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men, this thought of being careful, it means that we're concentrating on that. We're thinking about that all the time. We get up in the morning and we say, you know what? I- I'm grateful to be able to go out. And first, I'm going to start at home first because God has extended me grace. So I'm going to extend my spouse grace. I'm going to extend my kids grace. I'm not going to be a jerk. I'm going to stand for things that are right. We're going to have a home that honors the Lord, right? We're going to have that kind of thought. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to stand on those kind of things. But we're going to do it in a way that's winsome. When the world looks into our homes and looks into our lives, that they say, people that love Jesus, that have been changed by his grace. They're going to see dads that say, you know what? I'm going to submit to the authority of God in my life and the utmost authority in our life. The reason that we do the things we do, the reason that we don't do certain things is because we are submitted to the great authority of God. We're submitted to the word of God. That's our ultimate authority. Then we have other things that we submit to. We surrender uh, to uh, rulers and authority and we walk and we obey the laws and we pay our taxes and we're good people and we don't cheat. We don't, all those kind of things. And all those things we see flow out of the grace of God that has been extended in our life. And so we we think about his grace. We extend his grace. And when we do that, we're going to see what happens is, is that God's people want to do good works. When we're reminded of the grace of God in our life, we want to do good things. It doesn't mean that those good things, right? He's been very clear that those things aren't what earned our salvation. But as a result of those things, we exhibit those things in our life. Our response to grace It's to extend grace. Our response to the grace that God's given to us, extend it. And it's winsome to this world. I want to read you a quote from an atheist named Roy Hattersley. He said this. He said, the arguments against religion are well known and persuasive. Yet men and women who believe are the people most likely to take the risks and make the sacrifices involved in helping others. Good works, the Christian John Wesley insisted, are no guarantee of a place in heaven, but they are most likely to be performed by people who believe that heaven exists. The correlation is so clear that it is impossible to doubt that faith and charity go hand in hand. It ought to be possible to live a Christian life without being a Christian. Then he says this, yet men and women who, like me, have not accepted the mysteries and miracles do not go out with the Salvation Army each night. The only possible conclusion is that faith comes with a packet of moral imperatives that make them morally superior to atheists like me. We may boast that the truth of atheism has freed us from the shackles of religion, but it has not made us as admirable as the average volunteer in the Salvation army, even 
By the way, there, there's no such thing as an atheist. Romans 1 tells us that they are people that are suppressing the truth because God in his goodness has revealed himself to all mankind. So when people say they don't believe and they're atheists and all that, they, they may have all these kind of things, but they are suppressing the truth, right? They are truth suppressors in their life. And, and here's what we see, that even those people, as they look at the winsome works of followers of Jesus Christ, that it messes with them. They understand that there's something there. And so here we are, followers of Jesus Christ. We selflessly serve others. We help people in that way. As a church at Cowell, you see us delivering wood. Today, many Thanksgiving blessings go out. There's so many ways, right? Refugees that we serve in Clarkston, the, the opportunities that we have to put love in action. And there's places that you can come together as the church and do those things. But I don't believe that's what he was talking about in this place. I think those are ways that that can happen. But what was expected of followers of Jesus Christ that experienced his grace, that they would be reminded of that and then their whole lives would be intentionally, that there would be this constant reminder and their constant desire that they might do good deeds, that they might serve people, that they might engage people for the good of the gospel so that the gospel would go forth, right? Wherever God's people are, when we leave this place, whatever restaurants are filled with people that leave this place this morning, whatever families that are impacted, whatever places that we go, they should be better because you're there. When we walk into those places, they should be better places. They should be places that are edified. Our speech should edify. The way that we live should edify. This is who we are. If this church was removed from this community, right, this community should be heartbroken because of the good that comes out of the people that gather here and are encouraged and equipped by the word of God. We are a people who are sweet and sound. This is profitable for men. This is what we are to do. We demonstrate that the grace of God makes a difference in our lives. That's who we are. Look at verse 9. We've got to finish this thing. We're landing the plane quick. Verse 9, he says, sometimes we stand. Tony, I'm going to land it, I promise. A little inside joke with him. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strifes and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So he says there's places that we engage. There's places that we don't. This word avoid, he says, listen, we're going to recognize the lesser things, unprofitable and worthless things. We're, we're to stand against false teaching. We're to stand and not get tied up in foolish teaching. We're going to be a people who recognize and let the main thing be the main things. We're not going to allow the cross to be shadowed by lesser things. And, and we're going to, we're going to lean into the grace of God in our lives. Verse 10 says, reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and sinning and being self-condemned. We know what kind of man he is. He said, listen, we're, we're, maybe they, they leave. Maybe there's a situation where they do this again. They say, listen, we're going to reject them after a first and second warning. There's thoughts of Matthew 18 in there. You can kind of see some of that uh, connecting there. But he says, listen, we're not to be people that love to fight. We're to be people that will fight when we have to and we'll fight because of love. But we're not people that are looking for those kind of things. And we stand where we need to stand. But we don't delight in the debates and controversies among the brethren that are not for good. Right? He says, sweet and sound. Right? This is who we are to be. A church that stands for righteousness but that also is a force for righteousness that engages in the world. Look at verse 12 and 13. He says, when I send Artemis or Tychus to you, he says, make every effort to come for me at Nic Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Listen, we're a part of something bigger than what we see just in the midst of this church. We are part of, of the big church, right? The capital C church where we work in cooperation with fellow servants all over the world to see the kingdom of God grow. 
Verse 14, he says, our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. Every person, all of us, we serve in a way, we live in a way that, that we are fruitful uh, for the kingdom of God. We find a place to serve. We serve people. We live and by his grace, we as his people, we can be fruitful in meeting needs. We can make a difference. We put his love in action. Verse 15, all who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Here, here it is. We're finished. The church finds herself in a battle. Here we are with a call and a commission, uh, with a command to share the good news of Jesus Christ. We find ourselves in that kind of call against the backdrop of immorality, against a culture that's in opposition and a people who are leaning in to see how this thing plays out. A people who are leaning in to our homes, who are leaning into our lives, who are leaning into every part of us to see how this thing plays out. And we as God's people, right? Grace be with you all. We remind one another of God's grace. We're not motivated by guilt to go out and do these things. We're motivated by grace to go out and do these things. It's not uh, because of, of somebody putting pressure on you for guilt or those kind of things, but we recognize the gospel and what God has done in our life, and we live in light of that. Winsomely, we extend mercy graciously in the midst of this world. We experience His grace. How? You remember, and we read it today, right? Not on the basis of our good deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, according to his grace, right? That's the, the reality. We, as followers of Jesus Christ, we extend grace because we have experienced grace. And that's who we are. That's what the church looks like in the midst of this world, of people who have been changed by God. And the result of that change is visible all around. I wonder this morning, have you experienced the grace of God in your life? Right? There's nothing that we could do to earn our salvation. There's nothing that we could do to be good enough in our own works. But God loves us. And in his mercy, through the cross of Christ, Jesus, Scripture says, he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He took our place. He took our punishment. What we deserve, that's what mercy is, right? It's not giving someone what they deserve. And while we deserved the wrath of God, we deserved to experience hell. We deserved all those things, separation from God. In God's grace, he extended mercy. And in God's grace, he gives us, right? We're, we're, we're heirs with Christ. God's riches, right? Grace, God's riches at Christ expense. We preach God's grace. We share God's grace. He gets the glory. We get the blessing. In our response to the grace of God in our lives, we understand what we deserve, but we understand that by his grace that we can be saved. And our response is to surrender our lives in belief and faith to the one who gave it all. No matter where you're at this morning, I pray that you'll respond in obedience to God. If you've never trusted him for salvation, you've never surrendered your life to Christ, maybe that God is speaking to you this morning and you are aware of what you deserve. You're aware of your sin and how your sin is separated from God. But God extends mercy to you this day. He extends grace. He offers relationship to be forgiven, to be made righteous, to be justified by his 
grace, to be made just as if you had never sinned. Isn't that beautiful to know that when we surrender our life to Christ and we place our faith and trust in him, that positionally we are made right with God, that he looks at us and he sees Christ, that the the righteousness of Christ is credited to our account and we are made right with God. And then for the rest of our lives, he works to conform us practically to the image of his son, to make true of us practically what's already been made true of us positionally when we believe in Jesus. I want to pray for us and we're going to worship together. Father, if there's anyone here this morning, God, that has never experienced your grace, Lord, I pray today, Lord, that the cross of Christ would be, uh, God, just so real in their lives, Lord, that they would see, Lord, that it is not based on anything that we've done, that we could be made right with you, that it's not based on our works, that it is by grace through faith that we are saved, not of works, so none of us can boast. God, we boast in your grace alone. Lord, I pray you would just, God, reveal that, Father, and that there might be some, even in this room today, Lord, maybe those that are listening online, Lord, that would respond to your grace, Lord, and and your gracious gift of salvation, and they would surrender their lives, believing the gospel and being changed by your grace, born again into this living hope. And then, Lord, I pray that you would send us on mission for the glory of your name, God, that we might be people who represent you well in this kingdom, Lord, that live life sweet and sound. Lord, remind us that there are those that are leaning in and watching just to see how it will unfold. How will we respond to this world? How will we respond to the evil that's around? How will we respond to those that we disagree with? How will we respond? Will it be with grace because we have seen grace? Will it be with truth because we know the authority of your word and the, the truth of your gospel? Lord, remind us that it must be both. Grace and truth. We speak the truth in love. We live our lives for your glory. God, have your will and way in our lives, Lord, and may you use us as your people to reflect your image to this world and declare the good news of the grace that we have experienced, the grace that has appeared to all men. Lord, we love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand this morning in worship? Can I remind you this morning that the more we experience God's grace and the more we extend God's grace, the more God pours his grace on us. We never run out. We continue to commune with him. We continue to lean in to his goodness and his mercy.